Hello and welcome to Joko Yo. Just west of Benson, North Carolina, about eight miles or so down Highway 27, sits the small town of Coates. I grew up close to there. My grandparents lived there. Cute place. Like many small North Carolina towns, they're not really affected by the highways and interstates that have been built to connect people to jobs in Raleigh, Cary, Durham, RTP. The town of Coates still shows remnants of what the town used to look like. Vacant downtown shops line the main street, the buildings going up uh, when businesses demanded it. When You can almost stand in downtown Coates and see the ghosts of the town going in and out of the shops that used to exist back when the railroad was still a very active and central part of the town. I myself remember what had to be downtown Coates' twilight years when the post office was downtown. People walked into, I guess, was called Five and Dimes. I remember those. But I just know it as going to the store, you know, shopping at a small diner after picking butter beans. And the whole place had a cloud of cigarette smoke hanging around the ceiling. If you grew up in the 70s, you know how everything appeared yellow and everything smelled like cigarettes. I mean, that's how it appears in my memory, at least. And it looks like Coates may be right now having a small bit of a resurgence due to the growth of Campbell University, Go Camels, and the population overflow from Anger, which itself is overflow from Fuquay, which is overflow from, uh, and you have Holly Springs, Apex, Cary, and so on. But the old days of Coates and its foundational purposes, why it was built, that's long gone. Now, the town of Coates, as what was chartered in 1910, it begins by James Coates, um, a farmer and a brother of the first Johnston County Commissioner. Well, he bought 700 acres to farm the area, and again, right over the Johnston Hornet border. Benson, which is eight miles to the east in Johnston, had already been founded, as had the town of Dunn, which again is in Hornet County. But this story takes place a little bit earlier before the founding of Coates and Benson and Dunn, like 90 years earlier, in around 1820, long before Mr. Coates bought the property that would become the town that bore his name. It's a story of hope and tragedy, but it's a story that sort of needs to be told. We'll start with a man named Abram, who was born into this particular eastern corner of what was then Cumberland County, as Harnett was not created until 35 years later. Abram was born about as poor as it was possible to be in 1820s North Carolina. That's pretty significant. A farmer and laborer and unable to read and write, not much is known of him and his life unless someone that could record part of his life, you know, did so. And we, we don't really have anything. We do know that he married someone named Hannah. They had nine children, Gillis, Richmond, Hillary, uh, Letty, Isabella, Frank, Willis, Winnie, and Eliza. They all show up in the 1860 census. He didn't do anything of his own that would put him into history books, no records really, except for the census, no property records, no deeds. Just a guy that lived his whole life in absolute poverty, 
anonymity and died the same way. By all accounts, so did his children. Well, most of them, anyway. Like his son, Hillary. Hillary was born in 1857 near the Johnson Hornet line, and again, he was as poor as one possibly could be, and he did not know how to read and write, but he wanted more. I mean, God had ambition, and he worked hard to get more. He really wanted more out of life than what he was born with. The people that knew him, according to what you can read, were impressed with his work ethic, knew he wanted more than poverty for his own children, and, and many people who knew that, well, they were sort of intimidated by him. And his determination and his success meant that the winds that blew in his favor, well, for some people, they felt like it didn't blow in their favor, blew in the opposite direction from where they were standing. In other words, Hillary's potential combined with his intelligence, work ethic, well, some people felt threatened. It, it threatened their hold on the agriculture and leadership of the area. And Hillary was smart enough to know that. He knew that as well as they did. And so he knew as a young man that he was going to need to move somewhere else if he were to find his success and take advantage of other land opportunities elsewhere if he wanted to maximize his and his family's chances. Hillary married a lady named Larsenia, the daughter of Alex and Peggy, found some property near Goldsboro and had found success for his family by accumulating 500 acres of land by the age of 21. Y'all, in 1878, that's remarkable. Not only had he acquired from scratch that much property, but he also increased his yield per acre by doing different farming practices than what other people were doing in the area. Again, in other words, he constantly sought out ways to maximize his potential all the time, as well as his lands. This was nothing short of an absolute feat. Hillary made it, <clears throat> and good for him. You can see, there actually are photos of him, in black and white photos. You can see him wearing a dress shirt and suspenders, standing next to his wife in front of a cabinet full of china. Again, it's not, that, that, that's, that's pretty remarkable, again, for the time period where he came from. To quote a fellow historian, he knew that land in America was the only way for your descendants to have a simple single shot. But he couldn't read and write. That's his background. And he was outperforming all of his neighbors. His farms were beginning to set the market pace, set market price, and this disrupted the economic and power structure of the area that had been in place for generations before he got there. And this was 1870s North Carolina. It had already lived through the massive disruption of the Civil War, and many of the old power players were eager to reassert their leadership after Reconstruction ended in 1877. Hillary had bought his 500 acres outside of Goldsboro, maximized the land's potential, only to lose it all within a decade due to lawsuits and lawyers challenging his ownership and judges eager to see the old order established in western Wayne County. See, no matter how frivolous the lawsuit would be, 
Filing lawsuits meant that a person had to know how to read the suit and write responses and rebuttals, and Hillary could do neither. He could have hired lawyers to do it for him. That would be, the, I mean, why not? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. But some of these guys that wanted his land were power players in the region, and no lawyer was willing to help Hillary. Intimidation, maybe interest, whatever. But no lawyer was willing to help Hillary keep his land. He couldn't respond because he was illiterate. No land, no payment, no compensation, and Hillary lost it. But he was allowed to stay there as his land was taken from him bit by bit by, by obscure laws and, and, and some scheming landowners. He was, will, he was allowed to stay there and work that same land that he owned. But instead of it being his, he, could, he was offered to work for the people that took the land from him. What a slap in the face. He lost everything because people were threatened by him and he had no defenses. And Hillary became a sharecropper with no land, no money, no education, no future. Just like that. His children, Anna, Brasilia, Bessie, Hillary Jr., had to start back at square one, a legacy of what amounts to a legal theft of his work, money, land, future, and hope. His child, Bessie, was born in 1905 and died in Raleigh at 18 years old. Brasilia was born in 1901 and died in Raleigh in 1984, at the age of 84, so good for her, I guess. Anna... Uh, his daughter was born in 1899 and died in 1923 in Raleigh at 24 years old. Then they likely faced an entirely different history if Hillary had kept his land. I mean, because they would have been set. Hillary Jr. was born in 1897. I mean, he, he lived a long life, died in 1980 and at the age of 83 in Kenston, having, like the other children, left to try to find work. He married Sofell, who was born in Greene County and who had a similar family story. Sofell was a house cleaner her whole life and was one of ten children to Emery and Anne from Goldsboro, again, as poor as one could possibly be. Hillary was drafted to fight in World War I, and he and his wife Sofell sought jobs afterwards. Any children of these two would do the same, usually as sharecroppers. Which is precisely what happened. Their child, Laura, had to work in tobacco fields for two fifty a day, $2.50 per day, on and near some of the same land that had been stolen from her grandfather. Laura married a Korean War veteran who sharecropped and worked an extra job. He was usually paid, but Laura sometimes, well, sometimes the landlords would forget to pay her or dock her pay for various and frivolous things, all $2.50 of it. And sometimes, if Laura complained, which she did sometimes, they were evicted. And they had to go find work elsewhere. Because that's sharecropping. And you live on the land. You complain, you lose your job, and you lose your home. Laura and Henry had 14 children. Laura taught herself how to read and write. She would not suffer from the thing that ruined her grandfather's chances and stole their family's chances. She learned how to read and write, so she had that. 
but she was a sharecropper just the same. Damage had been done. That did not mean she had given up her chance to escape this situation of sharecropping and poverty, which may have passed her by, but but didn't have to pass by her children. You, you could only get around the system if you learned the system. But the first thing they could do for themselves is to leave eastern North Carolina. Daughter Angela moved to Iowa to go to community college to start the long climb out of sharecropping and poverty. In hopes of becoming a lawyer, she eventually found herself in Minneapolis as a nurse. Another daughter, Larsenia, got married to a man named George, and she left to Fayetteville looking for work, only to find very little opportunity. They had to leave North Carolina, they felt like, and they left to find work. They went to Houston, Texas with their young son, just a baby at the time. And it is in Houston that their young son grew up, where George and Larsenia found life not a whole lot better than Fayetteville. Their young child, by all accounts, was soft-spoken, gentle, everybody's friend, even though he grew up in a really rough neighborhood in Houston. He had dreams, though. He wanted to be a judge one day. Physically, he was a large kid, and according to the people at the time, he was very coachable, became a star on the high school football team in Texas. Football in Texas is everything. He even played in the Texas State Championship game. That is a big deal. He even got a college scholarship to play basketball, six foot six, and it looked like the cycle, I mean, he may have broken this cycle. But being a likable guy, everybody's friend, sometimes made him attractive to people that would take advantage of that friendship and trusting nature. And this great-great-grandson of Hillary found himself, through his friends, on the wrong side of the law. And eventually in prison. He knew he had found himself in a bad situation. He knew it was his own fault. So when he came back home, he got involved in organizations and outreaches to try to help other people not get into trouble. Good for him. But he also knew that to stay in Houston would be a bad idea because the friends that were getting him in trouble were still there, so he left. He did not want that life. No more than Hillary wanted the life that he had been given, his Great-great-grandfather wanted his families and his future. They want, he wanted a better life, and it was stolen from him. And this guy did not want that future stolen from him. So this kid, this great-great-grandson of Hillary, contacted his aunt in Minneapolis, where some other friends, the ones he could trust, had moved for work. And he made it there. He found work re-enrolled in college, and gotten engaged, he would, again, another chance to break that cycle. And then the COVID pandemic occurred. And he, like millions, found himself temporarily unemployed. On the night of May 25th, 2020, the great-great-grandson of Hillary from Coates, North Carolina, who saw a future full of promise, had it for a while only to have it stolen from him. Well, his great-great-grandson walked into a convenience store on that night, went to get a snack, went to the counter to pay for it, and the clerk, this one single solitary person, thought that he was passing a counterfeit $20 bill, he wasn't, and called the police. 
I wish I could say that this story ends happily. I wish I could say that everything turned around and that this great, great grandson of Hillary Stewart from the Johnston Hornet line made it out okay and he was able to get off this path that multiple generations of his family were stuck on and I'd like to be able to say that he found redemption for the descendants of Hillary Stewart. But his name was George Floyd. But everybody called him Perry. Everybody's friend. Now, I'm not saying that the theft of Hillary's land caused George Floyd to die, but I am saying this. I just wonder how could life have been different for this family had that theft of land and the taking advantage of the illiteracy of Hillary Stewart not taken place. Hillary had been born a slave in Harnett County. And through hard work, determination, and ingenuity, he made it and found a success that farmers, white or black, found elusive after the Civil War. That part is indisputable. No matter what side of the conversation you might find yourself, that is fact. I've seen court records where he was sued and swindled, and the grounds for the seizure of his land could have been simply contested if he had been literate or at least had a lawyer that would be, had been willing to help. Hillary had the money. He tried to hire several. North Carolina law forbade the teaching of African Americans to read and write prior to the Civil War, and lawyers were seemingly either afraid to help him or at least unwilling to. What if Hillary had kept his property? What if a lawyer had done the right thing? I'm not saying that George Floyd wouldn't have died because of injustice, 150 years before, but I am wondering what if? What a success story that could have been. What a different path that could have been traveled for generations of that family that instead had to survive and scrape for scraps from somebody else's table and wandering from place to place to try to find a way off that path only to hit dead ends. And the story of Hillary Stewart of Coates is one of thousands. Like Eddie and Dorothy Wise in Nash County, studies show that in addition to Mr. Stewart's 500 acres that were stolen was another 15 million acres lost in very similar situations after reconstruction by the same methods. Again, I'm not saying that Mr. Floyd's death was caused by this or directly caused by this, but I am wondering if it could have been related and if it could have been different. I'm also wondering if this happened as much as the records, well, they, the records prove that it did. How many George Floyd stories or those similar to his are there? Some studies estimate that there, had, there were 600,000 people whose stories were very similar to Hillary Stewart's in the same time period who was born a slave in 1857, where the town of Coates now stands, who was smart and determined to make a life for himself and a legacy for his children down through the generations. And thanks for listening. Until next time, y'all be good.